Okay, ready? Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Securities by Lux Capital, a podcast and newsletter focused on science, technology, finance, and the human condition. I'm your host, Andy Crichton, and today we have a special episode about all that space above Earth, aka space. Today we have two special guests, Laura Crabtree, the co-founder and CEO of Epsilon3, and Will Brewery, the CEO and founder of Varda Space. Welcome to the program. Yeah, Thanks for having us. So I want to start with a specific part of an intersection in your backgrounds, which is you both worked for a long period of time at SpaceX, which is, I think for most people, the most prominent space company out there, certainly in the startup world, but also, I, I think, outside it, in, the, in the corporate world as well. And I'm curious, maybe we'll just start with, with Laura and we can go back and forth. I'm curious, what did you learn from SpaceX when it comes to company building? Maybe we go back just a little bit because Brewie and I shared a cube at SpaceX for a number of years. And then he left and co-founded Varda after a little hiatus from space. And then I left and co-founded a different company. And I think we probably took away different things, but I think one of the major themes that I see is people that leave SpaceX are not scared of hard challenges. And, and what what drove that? Was it just, you know, the, the sort of Muskian, you know, image that we see in the press or was that sort of inculcated in the talent? I mean, where did you sort of learn to say, hey, we can actually go do this? The Muskian image is a little bit different portrayed from within the walls of SpaceX, at least they were when we were there. I didn't pay that much uh, attention to the public persona as much. It was actually interesting leaving and then having that be the primary interface. I asked myself, like, oh, did, has Elon changed or no, it's just kind of like a, a lens that you now view through. But I think the culture fundamentals that he portrays are true, you know, thinking from first principles, total ownership of the product that you are delivering, those definitely get ingrained in your head, especially for, you know, we were relatively early in our careers when we started there. Yeah, for me, it was a little on the recruiting side. You tended to not have a lot of people within SpaceX weren't ready for a challenge that weren't ready to dive in. And I'll say like, drink the Kool-Aid, you know, if you're not drinking the Kool-Aid, you probably don't want to be here anymore. And that kind of mentality where everyone is aligned on the mission and aligned on what needs to get done. And everybody there can see what's not being done. And pretty much everybody would pick up random tasks if they weren't getting done. So it was, you know, all about the mission and everything else was just noise. When you think about the engineering culture, you know, uh, when I look at software, you have this kind of continuous improvement effect. You can uh, publish a patch to your code or think of software as a service. You can see the feedback and the analytics. You can feed that back into your engineering team through product management, et cetera, and constantly make iterative improvements. With SpaceX, you sort of have this continuous improvement over these like very punctuated launches where, you know, everything kind of either succeeds or fails. And we've seen both over you know, the last two decades. How does the engineering culture adapt to that sort of delivery model? you could see the iterative engineering happening. I would give feedback to the flight software team. I'm sending too many commands to do X, Y, and Z, and they would automate it for the next mission. The other way that it's layered on differently than SAS per se is that there is, like you said, it's very acute. You get one bit essentially of feedback for the entire company during a launch. And I personally love that aspect. One of my close friends who still is at SpaceX 
one time he mentioned at the bar after at a launch party it was like, he said he felt like he helped shove the rocket into space with his bare hands. And <laughs> I think that feeling kind of permeates throughout all the engineers. What, you know, obviously there's a stereotype in Silicon Valley that engineers sort of pop up, they come for a year or two, they go and move on to the next startup. Both of you stayed a very long time, at least for my world of, of being a millennial at SpaceX. So in Will, your case, you stayed about six years. Uh, Laura, you were there, I think about 11 years total. And across kind of the industry, you've had these sort of long tenures at a couple of companies. And I'm curious, is that just sort of particular to you, particular to SpaceX, particular to space? Because I feel like you see the complete opposite pattern in most software companies. I went to SpaceX because I thought it was the coolest engineering I could do and the most meaningful in the way that I had a skill set. So there was an aspect of self-identification with working there. We weren't... Uh, I don't want to say isolated, but we didn't really think much of competition or the market around in which we were working. It was very, we were all just doing the one thing. Startup culture outside of SpaceX, you're more aware of competitors, you're more aware of industry movements. Those two things made tenure at SpaceX longer. Again, back to the mission, I, I joined SpaceX because I was passionate about the mission. I wanted to get people to the space station. And, you know, while we hadn't gotten that contract yet, it didn't even exist. I saw the commercial cargo contract as being the stepping stone to the potential to fly humans. And once that program started, I knew that I was going to see it to the end. I think for people that stay a long time, it's because of the mission and the people. I mean, I will say, I have some of the best friends from SpaceX that I value everything they say and do. When you go through something like pressure cooker, kind of like SpaceX, you develop a, a deeper bond with people that can't be matched when you're at a larger company that people don't feel as passionate about. Like when I left and experienced other companies, the discussion at the water cooler was different. If I saw Laura at the water cooler, I was not asking about how her weekend was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and she wasn't asking about mine, how mine was. Like, why would we be talking about that? There was more of a focus that permeated throughout the, the hallways all the way to the water cooler. In order to have longevity at SpaceX, you do have to find balance because in the early days, I... I'm not going to lie about this. I, I would work 18 hour days and I would come home and pass out and I would rinse and repeat and do it again. Um, this was before C2 mission and also before D5, which was the, the mission where we changed everything. Those two missions were huge kind of surges in my workload. And in order to last 11 years, I did have to find a a balance. I mean, I got married and had kids while I was at SpaceX and lasted 11 years. And so I think nobody ever talks about that because you just want to know how hard everybody is working, but you do have to be able to turn it off at some point. So that's something that I learned a little bit at SpaceX. Well, and, and you were there obviously a, a very long time, but at some point you did spin out, you, you spun out to separate companies, you did turn it off, so to speak, all the way to zero. And in and, and Will, in your case, founding uh, Varda Space or, or joining a CEO, and, and Varda is sort of the world's first commercial zero gravity industrial park at scale. I'm just copying that from your website. And then Laura, Epsilon 3, um, software for complex engineering, testing and operational procedures. 
And so I have two questions. One is, when did you sort of know you wanted to go and, and start to figure out the way and path out? And, and second, why did you go separate directions? I mean, obviously, you kind of saw everything, I would imagine, in the space world. But in Laura, your case, you went to software. Will, you went to hardware. And, and yet you worked in the same cube. So I'm, I'm curious why there's different directions. Uh, right after we had landed a rocket, we had you know, done some Dragon missions to the ISS. And, and in my mind, the next real big milestone was Mars. So I kind of had to make the personal choice of, you know, do I stick here for 15 years or so to really see that through? And, and essentially that's my career or do I, uh, you know, it's my, my first job coming out of college. So, or, or, or do I want to poke my head out of the hole and see what else this particular planet has? I want to see how you answer that question, Laura. I think for me, I didn't know that I wanted to spin out Epsilon 3 right away. and. I had been toying with the idea of leaving SpaceX when I looked out into the future of what kind of like what Bowie did, the future of what my next five years would be. It was train the astronauts, get the astronauts to the space station, do the same thing for Starship, rinse and repeat until Mars. And that was like agreed, like the next big thing. And my goal was to get people to the space station. And I think. Once that was realized, it was, okay, what, what do I do now? And my thought after leaving is how can I make a change or make an impact in the space industry? And based on the experience that I'd had in operations in INT and software test, I thought this was the next thing that I could do to benefit the ecosystem of space startups being born right after I left. As Brewing knows, don't like wasting time doing things that could be done automated and don't like doing copy paste. And there are a lot of processes that take time that are silly. And I don't want to waste time doing silly things. And you both spun out, uh, and, and you left uh, both in the last couple of years, let's just say, uh, different times, but roughly in the last couple of years. When you look at the space industry, other than SpaceX, there were not a lot of fundings from the venture capital world into the category for the last decade. I mean, it's a, it's a tough space for a whole host of reasons. But clearly, a lot of funds, including LOX, a couple of our, our peers, have really dived into the space. Why the opportunity today? And do you think that lines both up equally on the software or hardware, or are there certain sectors that have been more popular than others? Oh, wow. That's, that's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> you Actually, start it's, a with... terrible, it's a terrible idea to go into space. You made <laughs> a terrible mistake. Idea. Ask no. for a refund. <laughs> go, go to space. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways in which we could take this. We could talk about the human space flight aspect. We could talk about Earth observation, communications. I don't know. Where do you want to start, Brewie? Uh, in the abstract, I guess I'll start in the abstract. The reusable rockets was the thing that changed the paradigm. It showed that you could have a world where trips to space were like airplanes, and that demand is still growing. I, I would consider you know our company is essentially a response to that shift to the economy in the sense yeah we're essentially the elasticity in the economy responding to the reusable rocket technology. You know, there's always opportunity when there's a huge dynamic shift and there was just a dynamic shift. I also think that we haven't seen the end of growth in space. There's still a lot left to be achieved. Like Brewie said, the 
reusable rockets are going to enable that space economy that we all see coming. Well, to me, there's sort of a metaphor to like internet fiber for the internet, right? Which is there's a sort of core API that you needed, this core infrastructure, even to be able to build companies. And in space, getting your object, whatever case may be, it could be a satellite, could be a manufacturing hub, is extremely complicated to do yourself. You had to work with NASA up until basically until SpaceX came along. And now there are alternatives with Rocket Lab and others who have now made reusable launch vehicles, both with larger payloads, also uh, smaller costs. So suddenly a bunch of applications that never made any sense. I'm thinking Starlink, I'm thinking Planet Labs and some of the others who are doing satellite photography. You know, just that would not have worked unless you were an intelligence agency, you know, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. But now when you have those sorts of capabilities, it's totally open-ended. So, so we're in 2022. We're in the middle of a little bit of a market maelstrom. We've seen a huge pullback across the board, mostly in SaaS and software, but the NASDAQ is obviously taking quite the hit 30, 40% over the last six months. But space to me seems like a totally orthogonal, you know, weird, I'm going to say space, but let's call it market because I can't keep overloading the word space. So space is a weird space. Space is a weird space. Um, I almost said it and I caught myself. But when you look at this sort of category, I'm curious, does it align and correlate with what's going on in the market? Or are you seeing investors continue to invest, continue to double down? Do you see people flowing in from software companies going, God, I don't want to build the next accounting software. God, I want to get into space flight instead. The fiber analogy is pretty valid. And then I think that leads into an answer to your question. So Shopify is so many layers of abstraction away from fiber hypothetically wanted to do, you know, I don't know, sell bath mats or something. I could create a bath mat store on Shopify, which is running on TCP IP from an internet service provider, which uses fiber, right? That is very similar to in, in the space industry because it is so space is so generic. People kind of think of it as a specific industry, but it, Laura said it is going to be an economy in the same way that the internet is an economy built on fiber. Like our company Varda would not exist if launch costs were higher. And in the same way that, you know, Shopify wouldn't exist without fiber. We might be perceived as orthogonal, but I do think that it's each company within the space economy, some will be affected, some won't be affected, but it depends on the value that they're creating as a function of the very generic landscape yeah. uh, that space has to offer. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It depends on the product. It isn't just, are we going to still see satellites launching? And the answer is resounding. Yes. Satellites are still going to launch to space. We're still going to launch humans to the space station. Those things are going to continue, but if the product that you're selling isn't needed anymore with a down economy, then you might see some people not investing in very small portions, but the space economy, I believe, will still be growing. And one of the questions I have, you know, when you think about maintaining a kind of a competitive position, and this is related to Will's comment a little bit earlier, which is, you know, once you have this reusable rocket, it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper you know, at some point margins get compressed, you're getting to a point where it's about as cheap as it can possibly be. And that's sort of actually, I mean, continuing the metaphor, that's sort of what happened to fiber. Uh, there was this massive expansion in, in fiber back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And then, you know, all the X networks companies that were, you know, dominating the NASDAQ and the dot-com blew up because there was this huge overcapacity oversupply. How do you sort of position yourselves so you're not caught in any of that sort of overcapacity building? 
I'm stoked for the commoditization. I don't know if this is true in every industry, but there's kind of like markers for when nonlinear compressions occur. So the first one I think is the technology itself is shown off in a commercial way. So, you know, reusable rocket would be that first event. The second is when you realize it's boring, like that was a goal we always had was make <laughs> reusable rockets so boring that it would be like watching planes take off at LAX. I think the next one will be when there's a separation between the manufacturer and the operator. So similar to planes where Boeing used to make and fly planes. Now they only make the planes and they have operators like Delta Airlines, for example. So when we see that occur, that's another interesting aspect where you're now almost providing infrastructure. Hopefully one day that'll even happen for Varda will be a manufacturing platform for microgravity manufacturing. And we'll be having this podcast in five years from now. And I will be like, oh man, I got, we got to figure out how to get a new vertical because our margins are being compressed in the space manufacturing. I would love to have that problem. We have seen some of that in satellite operations. There are satellite manufacturers and then there are satellite operators. The person buying the satellite is buying it from the manufacturer and then they have their product, which is maybe Earth observation. So let's say it's photographs of points on the Earth and the product is not the satellite. The product is actually the data that's coming down. And then they have operations teams that are not within their company. So, you know, we are seeing that movement a little bit. Well, I, I want to pivot the conversation to one last topic, which is um, company building. So obviously 16 years of experience across SpaceX, you got to see it grow from medium size to huge size. And, and you're both based in, in South California. So built in that old defense track, the Cold War kind of defense contracting, uh, Space Coast, whatever you want to call it. When you think about company building and attracting talent, LA is a great place, not a huge number of engineering schools drawing into this. We always think of Silicon Valley to the north as opposed to sort of LA with, with you know a lot of space going on on TV and movies, less so I think from the engineering side and culture. But I'm curious, how do you think about attracting talent and bringing folks to both of your companies? I can go first. We are a fully remote company, which is kind of awesome because we can attract talent from anywhere. We source talent from lots of different places. But what I will say about Southern California is people do want to move here. The only problem is the cost of living, but it is a relatively easy place to recruit people to move to. I have had a lot of people that I've talked to that said, well, if you have an office, I will move to LA. That's my my goal. Or I will move to LA in the prospect of when you have an office. And so I haven't found that that's been really hard. The only hard thing is obviously how much uh, money people need to be living here. Uh, we're a little different because it's a hardware company. So uh, yep. we can't do the remote benefit. The reason Varda is where it is, is because it's the center of mass of the engineers that we want to hire. I believe the reason that there's so much aerospace in Southern California is originally the military bases over in Edwards and then Hughes aircraft, and then kind of, you know, it hit critical mass. So yeah, for, for a hardware perspective, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I actually drew a heat map of the United States right when we were starting Varda and wrote a little script to scrape LinkedIn and other hiring sites and created a heat map of like where the engineers that had the discipline and experience that we wanted to hire. And 
essentially LA is the number one spot for aerospace engineering, but there are some other hotspots. San Jose was pretty close as well. Then Seattle, then Colorado, specifically like Denver and Boulder. In my mind, the source of all value at a tech company is the brain power of the people. And, and in this case, since we're an engineering company, just go where they are. And then from a recruiting perspective, luckily geography and weather makes it a relatively easy sell. Well, I also just think it's interesting how much space is spread out. I mean, when you even think about from the NASA's perspective, you have the Kennedy Space Center down in Houston, you have Cape Canaveral down in Florida, you have a lot of the manufacturing out in South California. And obviously some of that is probably, you know, government doling out uh, some spread across the country to make sure everyone, uh, Florida, California, and Texas, I think are, are prominent states uh, with some influence on Capitol Hill. But nonetheless, like, I, I do think it's interesting that you can be remote, you can do really interesting work in space, um, basically anywhere, except if you're doing hardware. It, it's really hard. We still need the robotics API to manufacture and, and have the robots replace everyone. But I feel like that's another decade out. But Will and Laura, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Annie.